0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your biweekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck, Sharp, and Corp, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister.
1: And I'm Emma Phillips. Following on from last episode, we're continuing to look at comorbidities in diabetes this time chronic kidney disease or CKD. James and I will review relevant guidelines and recent trial data, before we'll join Dr. David Cherney for his advice on how to manage both diabetes and CKD when both present together.
0: As usual, all references discussed during the session are available in the episode notes. And in addition, if you're already thoroughly familiar with this topic, do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five minute mark.
1: In the previous two episodes, we looked at obesity and NASH, both conditions that are associated with type 2 diabetes. However, did you know that all three conditions independently increase the risk of CKD? It's been well established that diabetes increases the risk of CKD, as described by Thomas and colleagues in 2016. CKD is estimated to affect approximately 50% of people with type 2 diabetes globally. Similarly, Young and colleagues demonstrated in 2018 that obesity and other metabolic abnormalities are associated with around a 1.4-fold increased risk for adverse renal outcomes. And finally, most recently, data presented at EASD 2020 by Dr. Da-Hee Sioux found that the presence of advanced fibrosis, which occurs in NASH and more advanced MAFLD, increase the risk of CKD in people with type 2 diabetes compared to those with no MAFLD or simple steatosis.
0: Overall, these data illustrate that kidney disease is an important adverse outcome to consider when managing type 2 diabetes, not least of all because of its high morbidity, mortality, and association with other adverse outcomes, such as heart failure. As summarized by Tugel and Banzel, the pathophysiology between heart failure and CKD is bidirectional, and those with CKD have greater prevalence of other heart failure risk factors, such as malnutrition, acid base alterations, uremic toxins, and anemia, all of which also contribute to the further decline of kidney function, creating a vicious cycle that, left unmanaged, drives the onset of adverse outcomes in multimorbid patients.
1: So how can CKD be managed? A recent review in JAMA by Chen and colleagues states that optimal management of CKD includes cardiovascular risk reduction, i.e. addressing hypertension and hyperlipidemia, treatment of albuminuria via ACE inhibitors or angiotensin II receptor blockers, avoidance of nephrotoxic medications such as nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and adjustments to drug dosing such as antibiotics. However, a major issue is awareness, Fewer than 5% of people with early CKD report awareness of their disease, and the nature of the disease means that once CKD is established, it cannot be reversed. Much like diabetes management, the goal is to prevent damage from occurring through a mixture of treatment, monitoring, and risk reduction.
0: A possible new tool to help in risk reduction are SGLT2 inhibitors. In people with diabetes, these agents have been well-established as nephroprotective in addition to their effects on blood glucose. For example, the CREDENCE study demonstrated that even in people with diabetes and established CKD, that is, a GFR between 30 and 90 millilitres per minute per 1.73 metres squared, the SGLT2 inhibitor canagliflozin was associated with a 30% lower risk of adverse renal outcomes as compared to placebo. However, recently there were data to support this protective effect in people without diabetes, For example, the recent DAPA CKD trial. This study looked at 4,304 people with an EGFR of 25 to 75 millilitres per minute per 1.73 meters squared, and a urinary albumin to creatinine ratio of 200 to 5000. Participants were randomized to receive either Dapagliflozin or placebo, whether or not they had diabetes. The trial was halted early due to the observed efficacy, which was an observed 39% reduction in the primary composite outcome in the dapagliflozin group compared to the placebo group. This composite outcome included a sustained decline in EGFR of at least 50%, end-stage kidney disease, or death from renal or cardiovascular causes. And importantly, the 39% risk reduction was similar in participants with and without type 2 diabetes.
1: This trial provides strong evidence for new management approaches for CKD, both in people with and without diabetes. For example, during the presentation of the DAPA-CKD trial at EASD 2020, Professor Hirspink remarked that they observed a much lower number needed to treat estimate with dapagliflozin compared with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin II receptor blockers. Only 19 people needed to be treated with dapagliflozin for the duration of the trial, that is 32 months, to prevent one renal event.
0: So what does this mean for clinical practice in type 2 diabetes? How can we help patients with established CKD to improve their outcomes? Joining us today to discuss optimal practice is Dr. David Cherney associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and a clinician scientist at the University Health Network and Mount Sinai Hospitals, where he is also director of the Renal Physiology Laboratory.
1: Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Cherney. So first question, considering the recent data supporting SGLT2 inhibitors in people with chronic kidney disease but without diabetes, do you see this class becoming used routinely in these patients?
2: Yeah. So that's a very important uh, theme that's emerged from the DAPA-CKD trial. And um, the, the data in the setting of type two diabetes is, is very compelling and quite uniform um, before we get to non-diabetic kidney disease. So for, for people with diabetes, we have uh, a whole bunch of uh, results from the cardiovascular outcome trials, um, including uh, Emporeg Outcome, CANVAS, DECLARE, uh, and uh, vertice cv showing uh, very consistent effects on reducing kidney risk over time, especially as defined by a 40% decline in GFR. Um, so that's been very consistent. And then we have the, the credence data showing benefits around primary uh, cardiorenal endpoints and also benefits around specific uh, renal uh, composite endpoints as well. Um, in addition, benefits around heart failure and other cardiovascular um, uh, markers of risk. So there's very consistent data in people with type 2 diabetes, but the question has always been, should there, uh, can there also be benefits around kidney risk over time in people who are not hyperglycemic? And that's based on a whole bunch of observations from the cardiovascular trials and from Credence, basically showing that there's this discordance between levels of of, uh, A1C at baseline and the changes in A1C over time with renal benefit. In other words, there is no relationship between A1C levels or reductions in A1C and subsequent reductions in kidney risk with these therapies. So that's really brought this whole theme of treating people without diabetes to the foreground. And so accordingly, there have been both smaller mechanistic studies and then uh, ultimate culmination in in DAPA-CKD, looking at patients with non-diabetic kidney disease. And uh, in DAPA-CKD, there was a significant reduction, both in the primary endpoint, as well as in cardiovascular endpoints and renal-specific endpoints that were uh, very consistent with the data in type 2 diabetes, and also very large magnitude effects with number needed to treat in DAPA-CKD, for example, of only 19. So very impressive effects in a more mixed cohort. And people with non-diabetic kidney disease benefited you know in the same way as people with with diabetes did so based on all of that literature um, it is becoming included and there's also heart failure literature that I I don't think we have time to go into but there's also very consistent signals from heart failure trials also showing benefits in people who are not hyperglycemic those people those, those um, participants without diabetes so based on that I think that it's safe to say that there that these therapies are, going to become and are sort of transitioning from being a glucose lowering therapy into a sort of like an ACE inhibitor um, in terms of its effect in the heart and the kidney uh, to be used in a more ubiquitous way in people with heart failure or kidney disease or both. And that will include people with and without diabetes. So yes, I think it'll be a much more uh, broadly used therapy in the very near future, including people with non-diabetic kidney disease. And then more data will emerge in the future from trials like EmpaKidney uh, that could further extend these indications and in, to patients with even lower levels of kidney function and potentially people with lower levels of albuminuria or no albuminuria, which is what the novelty is for EmpaKidney.
1: Wonderful, thank you. So then looking specifically at people who are comorbid for both diabetes and some level of chronic kidney disease, how should management strategies change depending on the severity of renal insufficiency?
2: Uh, yeah, so um, the the trials that have been and I'll and I'll answer the question based on the trials that have been done, and the trials that have been done included patients down to a level of thirty for credence and down to twenty five for dapa CKD. And there were no differences in terms of the management strategies that were. Um, that were part of the protocols in those trials. The protocols were very, very similar. So the bottom line is that that these therapies should be initiated in appropriate patients with kidney disease and albuminuria, which is where these these drugs have been shown to be effective. They should be initiated and used in a uniform way across the range of GFR. And based on the literature from DAPA-CKD and Credence, the efficacy has been shown definitively in patients with GFRs between 25 and 90 based on those two trials. So I think it's fair to say that based on how patients were managed in the trials that these therapies should be used in a similar way across the range of GFR, and this includes when patients decline and the GFR goes below 25 and then even declines towards end-stage kidney disease in the trial, the, the medications were continued. So patients didn't stop these therapies in the trial. They continued drug or placebo until they reached end-stage kidney disease or, or, or an EGFR of less than 15. So regardless of where patients start, as GFR declines, the management should also be the same, that these, these therapies should also be continued until, until dialysis or GFR less than 15. And that's, in fact, what's been reflected in some of the recent guidelines in this area, including KDGO, which, which, uh, which highlighted this point. That they shouldn't be started when the GFR is below 30 but now 25 with the HAPACKD. They shouldn't be started at that point based on lack of data in those patients right now. But at the same time, they should be continued when the GFR decreases into the below 30/slash 25 range, because that's what was done in the trials. And that's pretty much what we do with RAS inhibitors too. That's a very similar kind of You know, analogy with the RAS inhibitors, as long as they're tolerated from a a hyperkalemia perspective, in most patients, we generally continue RAS inhibitors as GFR declines to keep that kidney protective effect in place, even as kidney function goes into the low CKD stage four and, you know, early CKD stage five range. Whether these therapies should be used in people on dialysis is a whole separate question, which uh, there's no data around yet, but that's a, an also an important issue that needs to be looked at down the road.
1: Thank you. And then finally, what advice do you have for our listeners in monitoring for and managing chronic kidney disease in people with type two diabetes? And do you have any key recommendations for both primary and secondary care professionals?
2: Sure. So uh, we've talked about the efficacy of the uh, of the SGLT two inhibitors, uh, but let's let's also talk about safety and monitoring, which I think are also Key aspects, uh, regardless of specialty, and whether you're in a specialty or in primary care. So, in terms of side effect profiles, the SGLT two inhibitors are very safe, and we know that from um, studies uh, that I've mentioned, which involve uh, more than forty five thousand people. So, there's a huge amount of data around safety with the SGLT two inhibitors. So, the the first thing to think about, um, regardless of chronic kidney disease stage um, or heart. Failure or complications is that these therapies do increase the risk of genital mycotic infections, and these uh, these uh, uh, infections are are can occur, but they are typically mild, and can be managed easily with over the counter medications, including creams or suppositories. So that's the first thing to be mindful of. The second uh, question that often arises is what is the meaning of the change in GFR or the change in creatinine that's seen with SGLT2 inhibitors? And and that arises because uh, there was some concern in the past that the changes in kidney function may reflect kidney injury or damage. And we know definitively now that the SGLT2 inhibitors actually reduce the risk of kidney injury and they do so by about 20 to 25% and we know that from meta analyses of the of the existing trials by Brendan Newen and by others so the, uh, why these therapies reduce the risk of kidney injury is probably outside the scope of our of our discussion today and it's also not very well understood but what's what's important as a take home message is that the change in kidney function does not represent acute kidney injury and in fact, there are analyses that have been done with canigliflozin, there are analyses that have been done with embicliflozin and ertucliflozin, which show that the changes initially in kidney function, whether it's about a, a about a five milliliter per minute dip in GFR, there is no interaction or association with subsequent harm in patients who have those those dips in GFR initially. In fact, it probably just reflects how these therapies work and just needs to be followed. But importantly, Rarely, in about 1% of patients, will have a very big dip initially, very big meaning 25 or 30%, which is again very rare. In those patients, I think it is prudent to temporarily uh, either hold the medication and watch for the GFR to rebound, one, or two, just repeat the blood work in about a week or 10 days to make sure that the kidney function is returning back toward baseline, because that's what typically happens. The, the GFR has sort of a Nike swoosh pattern where it dips and then goes back up to the baseline over time, which typically happens over about four to six weeks. So that would also be a reasonable, um, a reasonable thing to do according to your, you know, your clinical acumen. So that's another important uh, message. And that brings up the monitoring aspect. Um, so around monitoring, what we're typically doing more and more is that in the past, we used to check GFR and pretty much everyone who, t- who started, started these therapies to make sure that their GFR did not dip too much. But we know now that these therapies actually reduce kidney injury risk. They, they don't increase it. So what I'm doing more now is I'm just checking the GFR in those patients with GFR over 40 at baseline. Checking their GFR at their next visit, usually within about three months, just to follow up and see what's happening with their kidney function and their albuminuria and their other parameters. If GFR is below 40, especially if it's below 30. I think it's reasonable to do what you usually do with an ACE inhibitor and to check it a little sooner, you know, within one to three weeks to make sure that the kidney function is staying stable, especially in people who are who are older or frail or have multiple comorbidities. And then finally, I just want to emphasize uh, the uh, the extremely rare but serious uh, risk of ketoacidosis with which these drugs can increase um, uh, uh, compared to a placebo. Um, so these are extremely rare events, happened in a, about 20, 20 out of 8,500 people in, in DECLARE um, versus about half that amount on a placebo. So patients with type 2 diabetes still get ketoacidosis, they just get it rarely. These drugs just increase that risk slightly. It always happens in the context of another illness, fasting or infection or, uh, or hospitalization. Um, so it's important that we also recognize the sick day advice around the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. And just like diuretics or, or RAS inhibitors, the SGLT2 inhibitors should be held when patients are sick and not eating or drinking for any duration of time. So I think those are the important uh, take-home messages that are uh, that are that are most important to highlight for a short discussion like this. And maybe in subsequent discussions, we can talk uh, more about the uh, about these uh, fine points and uh, and any other issues that arise.
1: Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Churney.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, hopefully, we'll have the the, the opportunity to have uh, to speak about these and other therapies in the future. So thanks again for having me.
1: This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, chronic kidney disease is an important adverse outcome of type 2 diabetes with a low rate of awareness, despite being associated with other adverse outcomes. Consistent data show SGLT2 inhibitors demonstrate a protective effect against adverse renal outcomes in type 2 diabetes, And more recent findings from the DAPA-CKD trial suggest a similar benefit for people with non-diabetic chronic kidney disease.
0: Thanks for joining us. As a reminder, all references discussed in the episode are available in the description and we'd love to hear from you on social media. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favourite app or recommending us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu including animated storyboards and packages for small group learning.
1: Thanks again, and please tune in next time when we'll be looking at the co-occurrence of heart failure with diabetes.